Well, <laughs> as you can tell, it's, uh, it's only mid-November, but there is a lot of exciting things going on in the life of our church. Could not be more thrilled. And to continue with that excitement of uh, what we do when we come together is we walk through God's word as God speaks to us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for, oh gosh, two and a half months or so now. We've walked halfway through chapter 7. And one of the things we started last week, which is atypical and not normative for us, is to sort of do a, a two-week sermon. So this week's a little bit more succinct because I'm short on time, but that's okay because we covered a lot of the heavy lifting in chapter 7 last Sunday. We talked about that chapter 7 begins the responses section of Paul's letter. After six chapters of rebuke, now we get the sections that all start off with now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. I had to correct some problems. Now I'm going to answer your questions. The questions at the beginning of chapter 7 had to do with abstinence. There was one group of the church that was wanting to have all kinds of licentious behaviors, all sorts of worldly immoralities. There was another group in the church that was wanting to practice all manners of abstinence and this sort of forced piety. And so the church is beginning to splinter. There was, there was factions and there was isms and schisms. And so Paul's writing to try to correct all of this. Now, having said what I said last week, Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is sort of the death valley of the New Testament. It's very sparsely populated. Nobody wants to go there. When they do, it's hot, it's dangerous. They want to leave as fast as they can. So we're going to do this, and then I'm out of here, okay? Looking forward to chapter 8, where we talk about idolatry. Woo! Light topic. <laughs> so here's the thing, what we learned last week in the first half of chapter 7, is that really everything hinges on and anchors from the center of the text. There's basically three sections, and the center section is sort of the anchor and the hinge where Paul in all of his epistles will generally say something like, here in the church, this little uh, manifestation of the kingdom, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither barbarian nor Greek, neither Scythian nor free, neither male nor female. All are in Christ. And so in chapter 7, he's making one great grand sweeping point of you're missing the point. You, you must bloom where you're planted. Should we discard our wives? No, bloom where you're planted. Should we get married? Not necessarily, bloom where you're planted. Make the most of where you are. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Some of you have gone to, I don't know, like a family camp. Or, or maybe you were on some sort of conference or retreat, or maybe you were on a family vacation, or maybe you were at student camp or a, a student thing or whatever it was, and it was rich, and it was real, and it was riveting, and you got to spend time with your friends, and you got to stack hands and talk about things that mattered, like Jesus, and mission, and gospel, and church, and family, and like, what if the world was different? What if we made a difference? What if we could make an actual impact in the world? And it went on for a week, maybe two, or something, and at the end of it, you could hear the clock tick louder as you knew your time in that setting was coming to a close. And you said out loud to your spouse or kids or friends, or maybe to just yourself, Ugh, now I've got to go back to the real world. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I, I, I sometimes do, and I'm not kidding. When I leave church, I'm like, ah, I got to go back to the real world where there's mortgages and there's, you know, is there anything less glamorous than having to buy new truck tires? I mean, seriously, that's the worst. And all of the things and all the pressures. The point of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is you don't have to leave. 
that in reality, what you're experiencing in those settings and in those contexts, that actually is the real world for all eternity. That's why it fulfills. That's why it connects. That's why it scintillates. That's why it sends static electricity through our souls to feel alive, like we're actually doing something that matters. And then we come back to all of the stuff that we've packed on and we've stacked on for distractions. So it's really interesting. Paul has to speak to this. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is this really bizarre, kind of freaky chapter because it is the least combative chapter that Paul actually ever writes. And there's this wonderful sort of collision and, and a contest almost between the Apostle Paul as preacher and the Apostle Paul as pastor. And I will tell you, as I mentioned to my wife earlier this week, I think I personally have been more impacted and changed and influenced by a text pastorally than I have in a very, very long time because it opened my eyes to the leadership of the Apostle Paul and what he was dealing with. I tend to be fairly black and white when it comes to Scripture. Scripture says this, obey, or don't, and you're dead to me, because <laughs> I'm a, you know, such a compassionate kind of guy. And even more so with the Apostle Paul, but what you see in Paul is he has these theological truths where he preaches, this is truth. The kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming. We live in the now, but we live according to the future. And so we have a different ethic and aesthetic and philosophy. We are from then living here and now. And then he writes chapter seven to say, yeah, but I also know that there's a real world in which you live and there are issues and struggles and distractions and, and the manifestations of choices that have been made by you or maybe even been made by other people that you don't control. And so there is this divide. It's kind of fascinating between what Paul preaches and how he also pastors. And I felt such a peace, such a, 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 a grace and a mercy of, oh, gosh, our Bibles are actually rather marginal in some of these ways. You see, 2,000 years ago, their highest goal was mobility. And by the way, just so you know, socioeconomically, culturally, that is our highest value as well because we're Western civilization people. The American dream is built on the concept, the idea, the hope, the promise of upward mobility. Maybe geographically, but certainly socioeconomically, it's built on mobility. Well, it was in the Greco-Roman Empire as well, but their options were very few. And so the options that did exist, they were pursued with great fervor. Divorce and remarriage were not the exception. It was the norm. It was the expectation. You would climb the ladder by swapping partners as often as possible. And Paul comes in and says, now stop that. You're missing the point. Bloom where you're planted. I can say this, Paul says, in the middle of, in the beginning of chapter 7, because the home is no longer the fundamental building block of society. The church is. And since that's the case, we all need to be committed to it, understand it, and engage with it. So we're going to walk through this very, very briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. It's the second, uh, the Greek is peri-de, the now concerning, now however, now a new topic, but it's really a continuation of the previous you might remember that verses 17 through 24 are the hinge. The first 16 verses point to it. The rest of this chapter points back to it. Bloom where you're planted. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, 
These are, uh, these are unmarried people who are engaged, you might say, but promised to one another. I have no command from the Lord. In other words, I'm not going to quote any gospel text particularly, but I'm still an apostle. I'm still speaking with authority inspired by the Holy Spirit. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Uh, it, trustworthy may be a little bit too slight in light of a translation is verifiable. It's good. I'm an apostle. This is one of those texts that we know that Paul was an apostle. He held the office. When he wrote, he inscripturated. Very unique to Paul. And so he says, yes, I don't have an opinion from the Lord Jesus directly on this, but my words carry no less weight. They are inspired. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, there's a lot, a lot of conversations and conflicts about what the present distress is. In fact, it's very difficult to even translate. There are those that say it's the present distress, meaning the persecutions that were taking in Corinth and that people were literally dying for their faith. That would be kind of a present distress. If we suddenly had the doors fly open and someone came in and grabbed a few of us and took us off, we'd go, wow, I'm going to miss them. All right, page two. Here we go. And that would be a bit of an upsetter, right? So there were some persecutions that were happening in Corinth, probably from the pagan Gentiles, but also almost certainly from the Jews that were in Corinth would have opposed this new sect called the Way. And there was things that were probably going on inside the church. We read a little further into chapter 11 and you realize, oh, well, that's weird. There's people dropping dead during communion. That's a tip-off that something's amiss. Praise God that doesn't happen here. We do communion every Sunday at Bethel downtown. And if we did it every Sunday and someone flopped over, pretty quick we'd stop. It's just bad for attendance, all right? So there was something going on that was a present distress in the church. And so Paul's going, hey, listen, something obviously is afoot. There's a darkness. There's a resistance. There is a struggle there. So listen, if you're wondering about not having kids in this kind of world, Paul says, I get it. I'm with you. I, I understand. It could also be translated, and it's probably slightly more correct, not the present distress, but the impending distress. Paul seems to think that a greater persecution and a greater resistance, a greater challenge and struggle is going to come, particularly as we approach the second coming of Christ. So it's both and, I think. Because certainly there was persecution happening there. Certainly there was problems in the church where people were literally dying. There was all these isms and schisms and factions. And Paul certainly believed that Christ was coming. And so in view of all that, yeah, I don't know that that's the right time to plan a wedding either, okay? So verse 26, I think that in view of the present or impending distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words... Mobility isn't the highest possible good. Mobility isn't necessarily what will fulfill you and bring you joy. Bloom where you're planted. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Now, you may hear that and go, oh man, I was looking for a, no, no, you don't get to get in out here. It's not a free license to divorce. He's saying bloom where you're planted. You're already in a marriage, stay in it, make it awesome. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Free from, as though it's a prison. I didn't write this. I didn't write this. This is the inspired words of Paul. If you're free, stay single and align your heart, your mind, your soul, your activities, your relationships, your thinking, and your feeling towards the mission of the kingdom. Bloom where you are planted. 
Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Oh, that's good news. In other words, I'm single, but I think I want to get married, Paul. Okay, fine. I think it's better if you're not because the time is short and the world is hard. But if you do marry, it's not a sin. Now, that's kind of incredible that Paul, the preacher, the theologian, the apostle, also has to be the pastor and go, hey, it's okay. It's great. That's fine. But know what you're getting into. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. <laughs> I have chuckled and giggled about that verse all week long. Paul's like, really? You think you got troubles now? Have you argued about hardy plank siding before? Huh? Huh? Have you argued about the virtues of the Dyson versus the Singer vacuum cleaner? You think you got problems? You, oh, you want to talk quartz versus formica? You think, oh yeah, okay, I got it. I would spare you all that. Not that it's sin. Not that it's evil. Not that it's wicked. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't. But it is a distraction, potentially. It is a burden, potentially. It is a responsibility without question. So don't let it pull you away from the ministry to which God has called you, created you, redemptively recreated you, and redeemed you. Do not hide behind your marriage for a complete and total lack of kingdom efficacy and then blame God for the fact that, well, marriage is God's idea. I can't, I can't do any Christian work. I can't serve the kingdom because, I mean, he had me get married. If I wasn't married, I would be crushing it for Jesus. Really? Paul says, no, no, you don't get to do that. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. I'm glad he explains. Verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. Paul believed that Christ was coming back. The, the rumors of wars and wars and earthquakes and all of those things. From now on, that those who have wives live as though they had none. Fellas, do not highlight that verse. Don't do it. I see what you're doing. Do not highlight that verse. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, he's not saying pretend you're not married. It's sort of actually emotional. It's Paul almost calling back to, do you remember when you were young and you were free to be mission-minded, vision-oriented, laser-focused on a thing? Live like that. Stay married. Honor your wife. Be Christ to your wife. Die for her in thought, word, and deed. But she ain't Jesus. Now, that's an amazing statement for the, Paul, the Apostle Paul to be able to say. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. Not that you're not married, but remember when God creates Eve, he creates a helpmate so that Adam will be more encouraged and equipped to fulfill his duty as vice regent of the planet. He continues on. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. Hey, 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 don't get too amped. Don't get too excited. Don't be too psyched when things go great in this life. And don't lose your mind when things don't go your way because they're not gonna. The time is short. Have proper perspective. See the world through God's eyes to the extent that you can. It's like Paul saying, hey, how many times do you see James Bond get married? Once, and it goes very badly. 
Because James Bond is on mission. He needs to be unencumbered. Otherwise, she represents a potential weakness that could get harmed, get kidnapped, whatever. James Bond was ding, 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 ding. He's always on mission. If he's got to go to PTA night, he's probably going to die. It's the same idea. Let's say a sports team. I remember when I was in college, one of our, our football teams miraculously somehow that year made it to a bowl game in another state, and they went, and they, uh, well, they enjoyed Las Vegas. And so they woke up and tried to play football, and they just all kind of ran in a circle. <laughs> and they got destroyed. It's like, wait a second. You had one job was to show up and play football. Instead, you went and single-handedly rebooted the economy of the strip. Bad, bad. You forgot your mission. You were distracted. It didn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. You made it a bad thing. So when things go bad, don't mourn as though this is the end of all things. It isn't. And when you get a raise in your job, don't celebrate like you've just crushed it because of your upward mobility. It isn't. Christ is coming. What are you doing? What are you doing? Great, you got some new WeatherTech floor mats. Awesome. Praise God. <laughs> Verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I love that. He compares the current culture he compares the way of life, this desire for upward mobility, like an old dying person. Paul says, that, that system, why are you hitching your wagon? That is passing away. And I get it, it's been 2,000 years, but guess what? Only a couple of hundred years later, the Greco-Roman Empire was finished and every other nation has fallen. Every other empire, culture, society has come and gone. It's passing away, it's dying, it's decaying, it is fading away. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. I love this. I, the, the literal, I want you to not be concerned of the stuff of this world, all of the, the, the burdens and, and the things that, that bury you. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. Eh, not the ones that I've met, but still. It's intended to be. The unmarried believer is supposed to be anxious, concerned with, marisma, focused on, fulfilled by the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. What am I to do? What does God want from me? He's unencumbered and unburdened to arrange, array, architect, and align his life around what the Lord Jesus is doing in, around, and through him. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And not some of the ones that I've met, but still, this is in theory, not a promise. But the point is, you, you've got a whole nother level of distractions. And it's not supposed to be a distraction. She's supposed to be a venue, a sphere in which your gospel ministry flourishes. Not an encumbrance, not a hindrance, not a burden, a blessing and a bolstering. Verse 34, and his interests are divided and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now that's the one I text my wife every single morning. That's the reason she blocked me, I'm pretty sure. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. See this wonderful tension between the pastor and the preacher? Like, I want for you what is best. I want you to be single-minded. I want you to be focused on kingdom efficacy. But I also know you live in Corinth and there's a whole responsibility and a whole life pattern. I get it. <sighs> okay, 
So he said, I'm not saying this to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, 36 to 37 is very strange. Almost all of our translations translate it this way. It's probably not. He's probably talking to the father of the bride here. It's a very strange language here. So it, it could be this way. That's fine. It doesn't change the doctrine whatsoever. It's more than likely, it's if a father thinks that his engaged daughter is not behaving properly, that she's burning too quickly to the wedding day, fine, marry her off, provided that you can, but that you're not a slave and that the master doesn't have say over your daughter or that there's not financial constraints preventing you from doing that, fine, do it, go for it. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are uh, strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. Great, stay focused. Keep the main thing the main thing. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. I love this. This is Paul going, I, I want to preach theology and doctrine and praxis, but I also want to pastor and go, but there's real life and real people in God's kingdom, and we're in the already and the not yet. And I have just so enjoyed and been thankful for this tension this week. So then. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So if a wife, and it goes both directions here, if, if the partner dies or the spouse dies, she can remarry, no problem, but she needs to marry a believer because she's a believer. She needs to intentionally be equally yoked. By the way, back in those days, if you lived in Corinth, there was only a handful of guys, one of which was named Larry. You wanted nothing to do with Larry. So you were probably just gonna have to bloom right there where you were planted. And Paul says, that's great. Do the work that God has called you to. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. In my judgment, it is my opinion. Inspired by the Spirit, it's better if she just remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, gosh, Paul, we sure hope so. <laughs> like, that, that would be a good thing to be as an apostle. That, well, what he is saying is that he is refuting some of the spiritual people that are going, hey, in our spiritual opinion, we think that Paul's going, you know what? I'm pretty sure I've got the spirit too. It's much stronger language than I think I have the spirit. No, it's, I know I have the spirit. And what I'm saying comes from the Lord. Marriage is marvelous. Marriage is wonderful. But marriage is not God's ultimate plan. It's funny, the whole chapter in one way or other, 40 verses is talking about marriage. What's really remarkable is that what's completely absent is any talk about romantic love. Isn't that interesting? You would think 40 verses on marriage and life together that you would hear about romantic love. And if you love one another, it's not in there. And here's why. For thousands and thousands of years, marriage was merely about security. It was about protection it was about upward mobility. Can my family marry in and hook into that family's resources? I'll shop my daughter around until I can find some appropriate suitor. And for thousands of years, marriages were arranged and it was all about security and protection. About 150 years ago-ish, 200 years ago in the West, it became also about romance and love. And as it turns out, both of those approaches are wrong or at least incomplete. 
The biblical model of marriage is to be the primary giver of the gospel, to demonstrate Christ dying for his bride, to demonstrate the sphere in which one lives for another, where one helps one in their kingdom mission, where this one helps this one in their kingdom mission. That's where all those kinds of marriages clump together and they cholesterol in this thing we call the church. And the world is changed. But if we begin to think, as our culture prescribes, that marriage is the answer to all of our problems, just talk to some married folks. In fact, one of my heroes in the faith, this guy, Craig Barnes, he puts it this way. Love is a blessing in our lives only when we receive it as a surprising gift and never when we make it the fulfillment of our dreams. Love is a blessing. It's beautiful. It is not the center of our soul. Sorry, every pop star And sorry, every rom-com movie ever. So let me just give you four very quick principles. Uh, Did two of these last week. I'm gonna replay them ever so briefly so that we can stay somewhat on time. Just as a quick reminder, when you become a Christian, everything changes. You are walking in darkness, heading for death, separate from the source of life, no hope in Israel's Messiah. You were Christless, but then you were redeemed. God summons you. You invited the Lord Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. You saw the world in a new way. You had new relationships. There's a new sensitivity. There's a new experiential perspective in the world. And everything changes. Second point, when you become a Christian, nothing changes. You still go to work. You still have to buy tires for your truck. You still got to argue about Formica. You still got to worry about why is my granite already chipped? All of the things. So how will you do with that? It's not incumbent on you to try to change all those things. Bloom where you're planted. So third point, stay single-minded. I mean that both ways. Said it already, keep the main thing the main thing. You belong to Christ. Married, single, widowed, divorced, you belong to Christ. And like Paul, I also have to be as pastoral as possible here. Your marriage does matter. You are uniquely qualified to be the person that is your spouse's spouse. You are uniquely qualified to be the parents to your children. And so do that with great enthusiasm and joy, but do not move them into the very center of your life. They are dangerously unqualified for that job and it will crush them. And then you will resent them for not being able to withstand the burden and the pressure and the weight of the vacuous soul that you are. Only God can fill that void. Only. And he so desperately wants to. You were made to feel God's pleasure when you vie for his kingdom. If you hear nothing else today, let me just make eye contact with you, as, with as many of you as I can. You were made to feel God's pleasure when you vie for his kingdom. And for some of you, perhaps it's been a minute. Stay single-minded. God gave you perhaps a helpmate in the mission. Don't confuse that other person as the mission. What your mate needs more than anything else is to see the gospel absolutely coming alive in you as you love and serve Jesus and do his work in this world. Fourth, final point goes like this. Travel light. Travel light. You never see James Bond pulling a stagecoach. Let me say it even more simply. Simplify. Most of us spend the first half of our adult lives amassing stuff, 
acquiring stuff, stacking stuff, and we pile it up, and then we upgrade it, and then we renovate it, and then we nuance it, and we polish it, and then we get a bigger one, and then we get a much bigger one. Second half of our lives, we begin to look around and go, uh-oh, my boys are going to liquidate this stuff. <laughs> He's going to just lay a pillow right over me, and, I'm gonna, and they're just going to sell it all or just give it away, and then they're going to buy a timeshare in Del Boca Vista, Florida, and it's all over. Is that what I'm giving my life to, the, the, the seeding of an estate sale in a few years? No, travel light. Uncomplicate. Simplify. Get rid of it. It's okay. That stuff doesn't define you. I'm sorry, marketing in Madison Avenue. It won't fulfill you. It doesn't make you happy. Begin the process perhaps slowly, but systematically praying through what distractions might be preventing you from kingdom efficacy. See how the Lord will cut the strings to your heart from those things or those activities that you used to cherish won't matter as much. Well, that's Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 saying to bloom where you're planted, but to tie it all back together then from the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Same word Paul uses. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the real world. You don't have to leave it and go back to the grind. Don't you see what we get to do and have and be and feel and experience here? This is God's plan for your life. Bethel downtown. Bloom where you're planted. And may God be praised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the opportunity to walk through all the things we got to discuss and experience this morning. We pray, God, that you would continue to do the work that only you can do. I pray, Father, if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, after all the time we spent together in worship and talking about the life and the pulse of this campus, that you would move them irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. That they would step out of death into life. And for the rest of us, Father, hmm, would you convict us by your spirit, by your word, as your people to line up our lives according to your purpose and plan? That'd be great. Would you do that? or even better, because you've always got a better idea than I do. So we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.